Let's take a look at some of these numbers. Over 390 million. That's the estimated number of guns in the United States, according to the latest survey. There are more firearms than people in the U.S., and gun violence appears to be getting worse by the year. In fact, the country saw over 40 mass shootings last month alone, which took the lives of nearly 70 people. Who are the gunmen and what were their motives? Understanding motive seems to be integral in tackling this very complex fundamental issue. To help us connect the dots with an extensive database that dates back over 50 years, we're now joined by Dr. James Densley, a professor of criminal justice at the Metro State University and a co-founder of the Violence Project. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Densley. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. I actually stumbled across uh, a few of the interviews uh, your team uh, conducted with the New York Times, and I thought it was very interesting, the data set that you was you're sharing with the world, and also the, trying to zero in on perhaps a more fundamental problem uh, around these mass shootings, which seem to be more frequent in the United States. Could you first tell our listeners about what the Violence Project does, how did it begin, and what kind of data has your team been tracking so far? Sure. So the Violence Project is a uh, non-profit, non-partisan research center, and we're focused on trying to prevent gun violence in society. And it was co-founded by myself. I'm a sociologist by training and my uh, partner, Gillian Peterson, who is a psychologist by training. So the two of us sort of come at this from these different disciplinary backgrounds, but we're trying to find a holistic way of dealing with violence in society. And then the research that we're best known for is the one focused on mass shootings, which we're talking about here today. So we built a database of mass shooters going back to 1966. This was anyone that killed four or more people in a public space with a firearm. And we've coded them on nearly 200 different life history variables. So we're trying to look at everything we can about these individuals. So uh, their childhood and their upbringing uh, their mental health, their physical health, how they got access to guns, uh, their grievances, their motivations. And in the course of this work, we've also interviewed mass shooters, but we've also spent time in communities where these events have occurred. So we've interviewed survivors, we've interviewed first responders, we've even spent time with families who've lost loved ones in these tragedies and the families of mass shooters themselves to understand who they are. So it's a massive study, as you said, dating back to 1966. And the problem is, and a lot of the mass shooting stories we cover regularly on our program, is that we just don't have enough time or even the context to better understand the motive uh, behind these shooters. Is there a common thread? And based on what the Violence Project does, we might get closer to the truth. Uh, looking for common thread is just simply difficult. But your team was able to find that mass shooters in the U.S. are mostly young, with the median age being around 32. Is there also a common trait or characteristic among the young shooters? Were you able to uncover a pattern of some sort? You know, with the younger shooters, one of the things we've seen uh, time and time again is that it's often their grievances are often rooted in early childhood trauma. And they reach a point in their life where it, we call it a crisis point. It's a breaking point. And it's, it's, and it's a point where these are individuals that no longer care if they live or die. And so there is a hopelessness and a desperation that's really rooted uh, with these crimes. What then happens is they start asking these existential questions about why they feel the way that they feel. 
And that gets them to a point where they start researching other people who felt just like them. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, in this sort of, uh, you know, media, internet driven world that we live in, they start to see models of behavior in the past mass shooters that have come before them. So there's a copycat component to this as well. So you now have the hopelessness, the despair, the grievance, the motivation by copycatting other mass shooters. And then there's a question of, can they get access to firearms? And if the answer to that is yes, then you have sort of that recipe for the mass shooting to occur. Okay, so you have found a common thread. Uh, maybe some of these uh, young shooters especially were isolated, as you said, from society, maybe not with a g- good group of friends or support groups. Uh, and unfortunately, they have access to a massive database online that alludes to someone else who may have felt equally lonely and isolated, and they go to mimic the behaviors of past shooters. Uh, sometimes we want to, you know, you want to simplify narrative. We want to call it a hate crime that this person was a racist, but it's really not that simple, is it? Um, thank you for clarifying that point. Uh, you said you've compiled decades of data, Dr. Densley. So the Violence Project assesses that shooting sprees have become more frequent and deadly over these years as well. Can you elaborate on that point? Yeah, this was one of the biggest findings, I think, of the research, which was Looking back over time, even if you control for the change in population in the United States, that there are more people living there now, you still see that mass shootings have become more frequent and they've become deadlier. So there's a couple of ways of thinking about this. Back in the 1970s or 1980s, we used to have one or two of these types of events every year. And then if you move into the 90s and 2000s, you start to see three or four of these types of big high profile events every year. Now we're averaging at least six of these major mass killing events in a given year. Then if you broaden the definition of mass shooting to include any time just multiple people are shot, you get up into the hundreds. So this is something that is becoming more frequent, but also deadlier. So the deadliest mass shootings on record, the vast majority of all occurred in the last 10 to 20 years. And the biggest, most high profile ones, if you think about the Las Vegas shooting, which is the deadliest mass shooting on record, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, Uvalde, Texas, the school shooting that happened just last year. These are all events that are in living memory because they happened just in the last few years. Mm -hmm. So the most high profile shootings have also occurred in a very short time frame. So more frequent, but also more deadly. And that's the tragedy of this, really. Let's actually talk about one of the deadliest mass shootings you saw, in fact, at the start of the year. 11 people were shot and killed at a dance studio in Southern California. The gunman was 72 years old, which happens to be the oldest mass shooter in American history, according to Violence Project. Uh, the man who is alleged to have killed uh, seven others in Half Moon Bay, also in the state of California, just days after that shooting at the dance studio, was 66 the third oldest in history. Both alleged shooters were men of Asian descent and seemingly outliers uh, because based on what Violence Project understands is that most of the mass shooters had been in the younger demographic. What do you make of this? Is it an anomaly or is this a changing trend? I don't think we can say it's a trend um, because it is a bit of an outlier given the data. But I think what it does demonstrate is that that feeling of despair and isolation that motivates so many mass shooters to want to perpetrate these crimes 
um, it cuts across age demographics, racial demographics, socioeconomic status. It affects everybody. And I think that's really a call for all of us to be thinking about who are the loved ones in our lives who are struggling so we can look out for them so that they don't get to that point where they feel like their only solution is violence. And I think the other important piece about this is many mass shootings are not just homicides, but they're also suicides. So there's no uh, way of getting away with a mass shooting. A mass shooting is intended to be a very final act, and it's intended to be a spectacle that's witnessed and observed. So if you are at a point in your life where you feel like that is the only solution to your problems, something is dramatically wrong. Mm -hmm. So this cuts across uh, race, ethnicity, age, gender, and so on. It, it's a warning sign for us to be thinking about who is struggling in our lives and how can we reach out and help them so before they pull the trigger. Uh, Dr. Densley, you co-authored the book, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. And I, I want to get my hands on it because sometimes these headlines, it, it, it does encourage a sense of helplessness in someone like me. Um, based on your rigorous study and extensive data tracking, what needs to be done to slow the scourge of gun violence in the U.S. or even anywhere else in the world? Yeah, I, I really hear what you were saying there about that sense of sort of hopelessness, yeah. because that's a frustration that we had going into this work and something that we heard throughout it. But we came away from it actually with a sense of hope. And that was genuinely because we felt that mass shootings were preventable. And so in the book, we outline over 30 different solutions, which incrementally could have an impact on this phenomena. So I think about them as like layers of Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese has holes in it, right? Mm. But if you layer the Swiss cheese one on top of one, uh, each other, the holes start to fill up and you get toward a more perfect solution. So we talk about things that you can do as an individual right here, right now, that could prevent violence from occurring. Something as simple as safe storage of a firearm, if you are a gun owner, uh, not leaving the gun lying around and accessible. That's something we can all pledge to do. You don't need any laws changing there that could save lives. There's things we can do as institutions. So looking out for one another in our workplaces, in our schools, building systems that if you see something, you say something, and then there's a reporting mechanism accordingly. But then there's also things we have to do at the societal level, which is where it's harder. That's where you need those laws to be passed a lot of this is around sort of common sense gun safety, but it's also around building the social safety net, resourcing communities. So when people are in a crisis, there's somewhere for them to go and they can get the help that they need. Okay, so it seems to be a, a lot of moving parts, right? What can we, we can do at an individual level, what we can do at society level, what we can do to push lawmakers to change regulations, the, the latter being a little bit more difficult because I do also uh, get a sense of frustration from those who watched mass school shootings from Columbine all the way to Uvalde. Has anything changed between those years and it felt like not enough was done on the regulatory level? But... Thank you very much, Dr. Densley, for clarifying. I, I especially appreciate the Swiss cheese analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. If you're listening to our program using the podcast service, just a reminder that we do go live Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Korea Standard Time. So tune in and help us make the show more informative by giving us your input. 
See you bright and early on Good Morning Seoul.